every time I have been able to discover that common humanity, right from childhood, it has been profoundly joyous. So uh, to me, this is something that springs from fairly deep within. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We have with us today Rajan Makajani, and Rajan is a TEDx speaker, an author. Um, he's also somebody who um, is a client partner at Corn Ferry, which is a, a consulting firm, and his career has spanned interesting things from movies to leadership coaching to being in the social impact space. And we found some of his stuff so interesting that we had to have him on the show. So Rajan, can you tell us a little bit about you and about what you do? Thank you. Um, so currently what I do is I'm a client partner with Conferry, which means that I go out and speak to clients and hopefully win business to help them with their leadership and organizational challenges. That's what I do. So this is, you know, this is the first episode of season two, um, but we are still all about mindful wealth. And um, we talk about mindful wealth, true wealth, sort of true life success. And I've heard it referred to uh, variously as happiness or well-being as well. How would you define true wealth? So to me, I don't know if it'll fit into your frame. One of the opening lines of a particular book by this spiritual teacher uh, at an ashram, the opening line of that book really stayed with me for a while. I'll, I'll use that. It says that an experience is to life what a brick is to a wall. And so if you fundamentally want a life of well-being, of happiness, of joy, then think about every brick of the wall. If each of the experiences ends up in the net being more about being happy and joyous, then basically you have a happy life. Um, so to me, that was quite revolutionary because when I combined this with what I heard by one of the TED founders, TED Talk founders, Lakshmi, who spoke about the concept of billionaire of moments. Currently, the word billionaire, we use it with what is your net worth, what's the money in your bank account and your market cap and all that. But what about if we were to change the currency? What about if the currency was the quality of the experiences, the moments of your life, the bricks in the wall? Um, yeah, so that kind of gave me a sense of, okay, so if that's what I need to maximize to be happy, uh, then that gives me some direction of what do I need to do with my life, with my experiences. I, think, I don't think that changes it at all. I think that's exactly what we want from this. So that's a, that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, it's perfect. We needed to have you on the show. You just, you just did it right there. <laughs> um, so I wanted to uh, uh, poke a little bit, like, I guess what really uh, spoke to me in your TED talk is this difference between us and the other you, as you express it. So that there are, you know, other people that our lives touches that we have assumptions about, or that we maybe have trouble understanding. And for me, this really touched me because I work in real estate, um, doing investing, and I do a lot of income, low income housing. And so it's in that context, it's sometimes very difficult to understand some of the choices that, you know, the tenants make or some of the social problems that they face. And sometimes, you know, one is tempted to just say, well, make different choices. But 
you know, I think one of the things that really spoke to me in your talk is that you, you unpack some of those choices and you, you know, try to give us a bit of insight in how we can be more understanding and, and bridge some of those social divisions. So I wonder if you can maybe summarize that for us and, and show us how you saw a way out of these divides that we face. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a divide that has been profoundly uh, disturbing for me. And every time I have been able to discover that common humanity, right from childhood, it has been profoundly joyous. So uh, to me, this is something that springs from fairly deep within. The summary of the TED talk or TEDx talk, to be quite precise, uh, is that we have sort of divided ourselves into some kind of subspecies. We look at each other with feelings of strangeness and I don't understand why you do this. Um, our frames of reference are different and we end up making judgments about the other. And my exhortation was, that I had the opportunity to traverse across some of these, what I call the glass wall of class, uh, and to take a peek at the other side. And what I found was that the other is actually just another me. It's just, uh, there's, for, for all of the divisions and duality that I see apparently, actually they're trying to solve for the same things that I'm trying to solve for. Their choices seem different and weird to me because I don't quite understand their context. So the real life ways in which I discovered all of this was uh, in, the, in the talk I have spoken about uh, three experiences of me putting myself into the context and shoes of others. Uh, one was this 9,000 kilometer train journey across India which has you spend 15 nights on a train, uh, no air conditioning uh, in the winter um, with all of the blast coming right in uh, and with 450 of us from 25 countries on a train that's completely ours um, with each other's socks in each other's face, which is sometimes not so nice. Um, but they took us to, to the, to the work areas of 20 social entrepreneurs who've made scale impact. And what I saw there was mind blowing in terms of a million meals being produced by a kitchen or a small network of kitchens a day at the cost of 30 cents per meal. Um, I saw Barefoot College, which made architects, solar engineers, and dentists out of 60-year-old women, rural women, um, and the houses that they had designed withstood three earthquakes over a couple of decades, whereas all of the modern architecture fell down. Um, so I saw some really mind-boggling experiments at scale which showed as to how the communities and the strata of society that we, from our lens, tend to, frankly speaking, look down upon sometimes, uh, or at best think of them as strange and exotic. Um, they are solving real world problems, solving them at scale solving them in constraints that we can't even imagine. And hence their solutions don't fit our lens. And the simplest example of this would be the money that you and I pay for public goods, we call that taxes. The money that they pay for public goods, is called a bribe, right? Now, as a result, you and I are legitimate. Whereas 
and we complain about the X percent of taxes that we pay. And look at these fellas, right? Uh, they're actually paying a higher percentage of taxes. It's just called differently. It's just that we, the organized world, have not yet quite devised the system to capture that into institutional mechanisms. So it's not a feeling of theirs, it's a feeling of ours, right? So I guess what I really developed through these experiences, and I've just only spoken about that one 9,000 kilometer journey, I've spoken in the talk about uh, me then becoming a screenwriter because I really wanted to immerse myself in other characters, see life from their point of view. Uh, and the third one was uh, to become what uh, in, in North America would be more closely identified as a grassroots volunteer for an Obama-like campaign, which, uh, which, which took uh, people that were completely from a non-political walk of life uh, also uh, into politics and into the grassroots. Uh, to, to go and to learn about life uh, of, of people that one would ordinarily not be hanging out with. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question. Truth be told, I've forgotten your question. But yes, these are my uh, attempts of, uh, of just trying to understand the other uh, and uh, the joy of experiencing their context and then discovering the beauty of their decision-making uh, which was solving for things that I am myself solving for, that was the commonality. But what I hadn't appreciated is the sheer difference in the context and constraints uh, that they deal with. Mm -hmm. Our, I mean, but, go ahead, Terry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, uh, you know, so um, I think what I'm hearing is that there's a sort of participant observation kind of a, backdrop to what you're saying i mean is your advice because i guess we're looking for advice in terms of how do we implement this in our lives right and so I mean, if you could tell us how might we come by some of that knowledge or how might we inhabit some of that joy would that be your advice is to go and explore and participate yes absolutely i think absolutely i would say that uh, we're all celebrating uh, the journey of man into space. Um, I would say there's a lot of unexplored space, just two blocks down. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious about, um, I just have a very direct question. It, it, are you a Rotarian? No, <laughs> I mean, uh, but I almost could have been. Yeah, no, no, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of similarity there. I, I'm, I'm part of a Rotary Club in Berkeley and they, and they do these kinds of things in, in Central and South America. So it's, it's you know, yeah. that's my local club. Anyway, um, I, I am curious about, you know, the, the folks that you saw, they were running up against these specific constraints, the specific one, bribe versus um, taxation. Who solves that? I mean, it's it's step one is to understand that they uh, pay a lot of taxes in bribes, and they they are delegitimized because of the way that system works. But who solves that? I mean, in the United States and Canada, can 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 we solve that? I, I I'm kind of I'd be amazed if we could. Um, so is that something that has to be solved on the ground there or wherever the location is? Uh, and then how do we sort of agitate for that? Uh, and so you're saying that, let's say the problem exists in a developing country and how can you be participating in solving for that? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying, how do I, in a developed country who has to pay taxes, help solve for the developing country where it's not taxes, it's bribe in this particular circumstance. It could, it could fit any of these differences. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, one is of course the direct sort of go explore. I mean, you're the, I think in, in, in the Western world, you have this year off uh, between college. Uh, what do you call that? Sorry. Oh, gap year. I think that's more the, the British system, but yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, no, North America, we just work too hard. Yeah, we work 24 seven. That's what we do. <laughs> in Singapore, they just send you for two years of army. So you left no time. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so from the arranged gap year to arranging a gap year for yourselves, <laughs> um, from, you know, being a part of Rotary or 
any of these kinds of missions uh, and volunteering, uh, which would be direct action. Uh, but you're right that that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Uh, it's this, uh, and at the same time, it's it's the classic starfish story. Uh, you've heard of the starfish story. So go ahead, tell the story. So this this boy who's you know there's like uh, he's it's on a seashore and there are these starfish that have been washed ashore and they're kind of you know right now gasping for oxygen and uh, and there is this boy that uh, picks up the am I still audible? Yep, yeah. we hear you. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so the boy that picks up. Um, a starfish and throws back into the sea, then goes, picks up another one and throws back into the sea. And somebody comes up and says, listen, how are you going to solve this? I mean, there are like thousands of starfish that are dying here. You know, um, uh, how will you save? Uh, I can't remember the exact question. The punchline is in how the question is framed. Um, and says, uh, how will this save lives? Right? How many will you save? And he just picks up another one, throws that back in, and says, "Well, this one's was saved." You know, uh, so so that's what volunteering can do. Um, at a more systemic level, I would simply say this: it's it's an incomplete answer, but it's a, it's a beginning or at least the next step. I think that the developed world has a disproportionate impact on the lens that the rest of humanity uses to frame and view situations, to frame and view policy. When the US and North America and the Western world went into what is now called as neoliberal capitalism, when they spoke about the trickle-down theory, the developing world embraced that, right? Turns out trickle-down is actually a suck-up, <laughs> uh, right? And the ones that really do uh, suffer uh, the most are probably the developing countries that went in buying in buying this trickle down theory, right? Um, so I would say right down to your Facebook post, as little as that, uh, or as enormous as that, um, and your own thinking, which starts to champion a different frame that starts to champion the fact that, listen, they're not the ones that are illegitimate. It's just we've defined it in a particular way. They're actually paying for the same goods and services that you and I are paying for, and perhaps are actually paying much higher, right? And so the first step has to be empathy and compassion, not out of some kind of moral high ground, but very practically speaking. In fact, these are the folks that are paying taxes that are not being accounted for. Right. So in that sense, we need to elevate our game <laughs> uh, to say, OK, how can I recognize what you are doing? And if I think as an organic process, when large numbers of educated people start to have those kinds of conversations over coffee and, uh, and drinks and, uh, and on, on social media uh, and so on, I think it's going to change the world. And in while it seems like, wow, it's it's just so out there. But I think just the the the, the, the rapidness with which or the speed with which change, things are changing actually in response to public opinion is is quite astonishing. I mean, from awareness to climate change and ESG becoming something that now 74% of the world's capital has committed to. I mean, this was just 10 years ago that all of this was a complete pipe dream, right? Um, but just enough people said, no, I think I see we are screwing this thing up. We've got to do something. And if you don't do it, companies, then uh, I'm not buying. Um, so I think these things do make a lot of difference. So that's a, a nice segue into the next question, which is, um, I read in, in one of your articles, you're talking about the triple bottom line. And I'm assuming that's a win-win-win that is for social, like social, social justice for organizations and for ourselves. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? Because we're really interested in how you're 
personal striving for success or organization striving for success can be done in a way that's socially responsible. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, so how does the triple bottom line sort of come together? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, there are many areas or most areas where the win-win-win is actually possible, particularly if uh, a more long-term approach or time horizon is taken into mind. Um, let us also be honest that there are certain areas where the win-win-win will require collaborative effort. It's a little bit like if there are two teams that are playing soccer, right? Uh, and they realize actually this game could be made a lot faster or a lot better uh, if we uh, somehow did something to, to, the, to the stadium or to the ground or you know, change the environment, the enabling conditions in which we are playing the game. And if both teams just had 11 players each, now if one of the teams said, yeah, actually that would really make the game really good, and then both teams would probably attract more spectators, make more money, and so on. Uh, it is true that there are certain contexts in which if only one of the teams realized this and took two players out while the other team continued to play with 11, uh, in the short run, they would be actually scoring more goals and winning more matches. Because these guys are just nine and you got 11 there. Um, so, so there are those problems where society, governments, industry associations on their own, uh, consumer forums, the power of the collective, all of these will need to come together and say, we do need to put some investment aside. And we need to make sure that that doesn't penalize one player over the other. Um, if that is taken care of, then there are indeed multiple use cases of the win-win-win being a reality. Um, I could speak more about the actual use cases, but um, this is sort of fundamentally how I think about it. And I just want to be clear, um, triple bottom line, and it, it, are you referring to it as people, planet, profit? Yes. Triple yes. bottom line. Okay. Okay. Have you heard that before, Terry? I have not. Okay. There we go. Um, Rajan, could you say something about leadership by results? What What is that? Well, so leadership by results is um, is a, is a is a way of thinking about uh, leadership, where it's characterized by three things. Number one you draw a very clear distinction between leadership and tourism, uh, which is you don't send people on leadership courses to say, hey, you might learn something and meet new people. If that's what you wanna do for your people, send them to the beach, send them to museums. They might, you know, they might like something, they might learn something new, and yes, they might meet some new people. Um, so then what distinguishes leadership from tourism would be that, listen, here is a top three business agenda that we're really trying to solve for as an organization. It could be in terms of external facing clients, revenue or cost and so on. It could be organization building. I need to build a successor pipeline. I need to digitize the business, et cetera. Um, it could be impact oriented. You know, this is the kind of stakeholder impact that we want to have and so on. But as long as it is a top three board agenda. Now, if this is the big, hairy, audacious goal that we want to set up and uh, really pursue, which creates the gulp effect, which is when I think about that goal, I go like, mm, okay. Oh, that's going to be a tough one. Okay, that's a great test of now we're talking. Okay. Now, in this context, what kind of knowledge, 
skills and mindsets most importantly mindsets do i need to shift to be able to effectively address these challenges and realize these big hairy audacious goals and what do i need to do that brings out the best of me then to do it with teams how can we undergo a leadership program that then brings out not just the best of me but we do it together so it's the best of we and then the last piece being that now that i've taken a self a look at self in mirror we've all done that together as a top team we've done it in the context of a big hairy audacious goal now let's think about how can we bring about the best of us which is the systems processes the strategy the whatever else is needed for the business to make sure that we are now all aligned towards this top 3 board level goal so in other words leadership by results is making sure that leadership is contextualized to a big business goal leadership is seen not just as an individual game but it's actually taking an entire intact team top team other teams together uh, and the third is Uh, to stay accountable to results if this is the big hairy audacious goal that we went in for then let me make sure that i'm measuring whether we actually got to that or not now if that has to be the case then by definition leadership would not be a one time event it would be a journey and so it has to make sure then that all of those uh, support and challenge elements are present over a period of time that takes you through the journey to the attainment of the big goal okay <laughs> thank you i think that was a good uh, good summary um i wonder if you can tell us a little bit about esg so that for me was the new like i'm more from the real estate space so we don't have too much um esg consulting in <laughs> on the ground real estate um maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that is and some of the challenges that you face um with the with the type of consulting that you do so uh esg is first of all environment social and governance and uh this has now become really uh, a revolution across the world um it was uh, milton friedman who had famously said that uh, the business of business is to do business and to earn a profit and that is its societal contribution uh which in one sense made sense if the contextual factors were lined up in a particular manner which means that under the assumption that profits can happen only through genuine innovation and productivity breakthroughs then overall as a society we would all be uh, doing well right and anything else that interfered with profit would be in that sense contrary to the role that business has to play or 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 that's not that it would be a distraction uh Uh, in fact from their contribution to society because they should not be thinking of contributing to society they should just be focused on profit but the underlying assumption there was perfect competition perfect markets uh and like anybody about the age of when you are still enjoying um prince charming and princess charming uh fairy tales knows that there is nothing called the perfect markets there is nothing called perfect competition Uh, and 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 distortions in the market are actually the way to make profit in many cases not in all cases but but in many cases so then the uh, starting with al gore who 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 brought to popular awareness this whole challenge of environment and climate crisis uh, through his movie inconvenient truth and the entire uh, movement that he launched it started to come about that look the market actually does not price in uh, some of these what are called in economics as externalities i can pollute for free that does not mean and i can make a profit but that's that's a market imperfection actually yes milton friedman your whole your views would still hold if you found out a way to price that in right 
um, and, and likewise for exploitative labor and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so now the thinking has evolved and what is being agreed upon, which has been agreed upon not just by governments, uh, but by institutional investors and about 74% of institutional investment money, which is several trillion dollars, I don't remember the statistics uh, off, off hand, has signed up to this pledge that we will not make investments where ESG considerations are, are not taken into account by businesses. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. And this sort of ties in back to the win-win-win and the triple bottom line that we spoke about earlier, which is that even if you were to take the heart and the compassion and everything out of the equation, and if you were to still keep it perfectly rational, uh, from an investor's perspective, if you are a polluting industry, if you are, if your business model is based on uh, sweatshops, uh, etc., cetera, uh, then, uh, or if your business model is based on bribing, you know, big bribes to big governments and all of that, uh, so ESNG, uh, then an investor is basically sitting on a risk uh, because um, willy-nilly with time, all of these things will be factored in. Uh, and uh, if, if you're sitting on a risk, uh, then, then you, know, you either pay me higher cost of capital, or if you want competitive cost of capital, then you please show me how you're not just making a profit, but you're also doing well on ESG parameters. So this is really what's kind of going on. And uh, what's very interesting is the election of Joe Biden, uh, COP26, uh, and most importantly, the pandemic has had actually um, a counterintuitive effect. Uh, people were thinking that with the pandemic, all of this climate change and everything would start to take a bit of a backseat because people would be like, or companies would be like, listen, I need to survive. Uh, but actually what seems to have happened is that uh, all of those doomsday projections of because of climate change uh, risks uh, that felt like, oh, the world will shut down, oh, this will happen, that will happen. Uh, frankly speaking, did kind of feel to people, uh, to business leaders as a little bit of tree hugging and a little bit of sci-fi. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen it in the movies. Yeah, we'll come to it. I mean, of course, I'll give a nice speech at Davos, but you know, in the boardroom when we're making decisions, you know, you don't make it based on sci-fi movies, do you? Uh, but the pandemic showed that this is not a sci-fi movie. The world can actually shut down, like shut down. <laughs> um, and what started to be apparent uh, was that uh, this, the pandemic could only be the trailer, the movie being climate change. Um, so, so I think, uh, what's really happened is that investors, so earlier in our conversations, uh, CEOs would say, look, I, I, I'm totally for all of this, man. But what to do, the investors want to return. Now it's flipped. The investors are saying to management, what are you doing about this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I pledge to be carbon neutral by whatever date. And then they're now trying to figure out, damn it, guys, how do we do this? <laughs> Um, so that's kind of, I think, what's going on at the moment. I think it's really interesting how it's the, uh, it's the popular uptake of yeah. ESG that has pushed corporate America, corp global corporations to, uh, to improve their carbon footprint, but also, you know, rights for same-sex couples. So, you know, everything gets pushed because the investors think it's important, which is really neat. So I, I want to loop back to the beginning a little bit. Um, with the Zinger question that I'd, I'd warned you about. Um, so you're a consultant at Corn Ferry. You know, you work with companies and some companies I'm sure come to you guys and say, hey, we need to figure out this ESG thing. Um, but some companies come and say, hey, we need to be more profitable, uh, whatever phrasing they use. Um, when someone comes to you and they say, yeah, we need to be more profitable or we need to have operational efficiencies or whatever. And you say, well, you know, think about this impact thing. How much support do you have from within the organization, within Corn Ferry, to, to push this? Is it seen as an agenda? Is it seen as something, hey, this is really important. It could be impactful, uh, both, both from the bottom line and from social impact. Um, do you have a lot of support? Do you feel like you're alone? 
that's the general question is in, is in the consulting environment, um, how do you feel as somebody who believes this and who, who has spoken very publicly about it? So I think uh, the first principle in leadership coaching is that you cannot coach somebody that's not on the pitch. You cannot coach somebody that doesn't want to be coached. Um, no matter how good a coach you are, no matter how passionate you are about coaching or the game, right? So I think uh, one has to understand uh, both the limitations and then I'll come to the privilege uh, of being a consultant. Uh, so the number one point that I would like to make is you cannot impose an agenda on a client as a consultant. Their agenda is their agenda. And they're asking you if you can help them accelerate their agenda. If that agenda happens to be operational effectiveness, um, very strong advice. Don't try to uh, be an activist in that setting and try and impose an agenda of, but you know what, actually you should be looking at something else. No, that's what they're looking for. Now, within that, if you are both convinced, knowledgeable, and persuasive, uh, and genuine, that here are the ways in which the operational efficiency agenda can be supported by energy efficiency, by um, distribution of uh, your sourcing locations, across the world uh, rather than to the sweatshops uh, because that's de-risking yourselves, right? And so on. So it has to be done within the umbrella of what the client is asking you for, right? Uh, and if we genuinely do believe in triple bottom line, we don't necessarily have to go and ask others to believe in triple bottom line. If they're asking for the profit part of the bottom line, uh, and if we, as I said, are knowledgeable, credible, persuasive, resourceful, creative, and authentic, that yes, I'm giving you those ideas which actually are going to help your operational efficiency, um, then that's the way to bring that influence. So that's number one. And to your question of, is that a lonely battle? Uh, not really. I mean, it does it does have uh, the more challenging, uh, or, or it does involve the challenges that anybody with any kind of new idea has always had to face, right? Uh, because one of the easy ways of operational efficiency could be, okay, let's just fire some buckets. <laughs> uh, or, uh, so, so there, there would be those that be like, why are we doing all of this when, you know, there's a straightforward solution available. Uh, and so then you, you face those challenges like any other person that's bringing new ideas, any kind of new ideas to the table, right? Um, but I think there is increasing support and as long as you're able to make that case, I think it works. The second point about, let's say Conferry specifically, um, and literally I'm coming off of a coffee uh, last evening with a fellow uh, colleague who's very, very successful. And uh, he's talked to me about uh, the enormous burn rate Right, um, that uh, colleagues are facing, particularly junior colleagues, uh, and the kind of energy that they are deriving uh, from being also able to work on some of the projects that I'm leading uh, with UN agencies, with uh, you know, with the nonprofit space, with the impact ESG space, etc. Uh, and he's like. You know, forget about the heart. I mean, of course, I want to do this. He's, 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 he's an amazing guy. Uh, he's like, listen, I mean, I have a, I have a talent retention challenge and you are the answer. <laughs> right? Now that's, that's one uh, example. Um, and, you know, doing good, doing well, I think is really becoming a real possibility uh, for proper commercially listed organizations with demanding boards and all of that. We have a nonprofit practice where we do work as contrary. We have ESG where we're doing work and we're doing that at a profit, right? Uh, but we're also being able to 
because we're bringing value, uh, you know, we're, we're being able to do the triple bottom line. Um, probably the last thing I'll say is from a client perspective, as we think about ESG, we're ourselves trying to segment the market and trying to see who will actually listen to that story, right? Uh, and I think there are there are three kinds of folks that will listen to that story. Number one, if you're a part of a global supply chain, I'm saying particularly here in Asia, uh, uh, if you're a part of a global supply chain that particularly supplies to Europe uh, and to perhaps North America, Europe for sure, uh, then you ESG is a business imperative because otherwise you will lose your B2B customers. Um, second is if you uh, have any international capital that's being invested right, uh, by, by global players, by institutional money, uh, those folks are already signing up those pledges uh, and they're going to be asking you ESG questions. Uh, I mean, make a choice. You want to be embarrassed in front of them or you want to be a couple of steps ahead. Um, and by the way, it's not like you will not receive funding. You will receive funding, but your cost of capital will be higher. And it's simple, straightforward business because you're more risky, right? Uh, and then uh, the third point is what I just mentioned. Uh, which is that of uh, talent and human capital, particularly if you want millennials, if you want the more creatively inclined, innovative workforce that, that, that is seeking more uh, to be engaged. So talent, uh, financial capital, global supply chain, let's talk ESG. Is the, is the talent uh, issue global? I, I know in the United States, absolutely. Millennials are, are saying, I don't want to work for a place that does anything bad. And they're, and they're leaving. They'll absolutely leave the job, right? Um, is, that, is that true globally as well? Well, um, here's how I would say it's a yes and a no. Um, this is where I go back to the class question. The, uh, the yes part is that, firstly, if I talk about uh, Asia in particular, uh, and perhaps a little bit of Africa also I could talk about. There are certain countries, cultures uh, like India, uh, you know, parts of Africa, where uh, there is a fairly strong social consciousness. And uh, with that, there are many in the uh, educated millennial class uh, who are making exactly the kinds of choices that you just spoke about. Um, then there are cultures that uh, perhaps are, um, let's call it more oriented to prosperity in the more traditional sense of the term, uh, uh, as well as uh, there are those who, uh, you know, India as is just before the pandemic actually, was at a 45-year high in terms of its unemployment. Uh, now, in that context, now when you broaden the definition of talent, not just to cool millennials on mobiles, uh, but when you think about it as a larger labor force, uh, I mean, frankly speaking, if somebody can put two square meals uh, on the table uh, in those classes, uh, then that's what they're really thinking about. That, that that speaks to your privilege. That's the privilege of thinking about um, green ESG. It's a privilege to be in that space for sure. Absolutely. It's a privilege and a responsibility yep. because the other doesn't have that privilege. So not only do I have to think about it from my own standpoint, but I have to make sure that the systems that I and my forefathers have perpetrated uh, uh, because of which the other does not have the privilege of thinking about it. So I need to be thinking on their behalf as well. And when you, when you, when you weigh in the fact that the other you is the one that experiences the downside of the global warming, yeah. uh, the responsibility is even greater. Yes. There is a shocking statistic. I mean, I don't know if you've been to India. Uh, have you, either of you? I have not. I have, yeah. You have? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and you would have noticed the amount of begging that happens in the cities at the traffic lights. I mean, it's enormous, right? I mean, it's just enormous. A shocking statistic that I read from Arundhati Roy, uh, who is uh, a Booker Prize winner, um, is that seven out of 10 of those folks are actually displaced 
by uh, man-made uh, droughts or floods uh, due to dams, deforestation, uh, and, and such man-made climactic disasters. Now, for a moment, just let that sink in. Seven out of these 10 people who are knocking at your window with little children in their hands that are barely closed with, you know, uh, swelled up bellies and uh, with these women sleeping on the streets with the ris risk of rape every night uh, on the pavement were living in their own little homes in green villages uh, where they had been living since their ancestral times. If somebody from somebody like us, a consultant that said, you know, we could do a hydropower project here. We could build a dam here and we'd give electricity to, you know, those factories there and so on. And we'd build all of the employment models and the economic prosperity and everything else. And frankly, not just for the capitalist, not just for the businessman, but for the people that we would generate employment for, etc. But our frame did not take into account what this would do to these areas. Our frame did not take into account that when I was on the laptop in the car and I said this beggar to just go, this nuisance, I was creating seven more beggars. Right. So I think back to your point of what can somebody do, frankly, awareness would be huge because then my laptop and my presentation would start to look slightly different. For sure. It, it dawns on me that the that just structurally, the people making decisions are all economists and we need to have more sociologists involved. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and even if it were, you know, even economics itself is, is frankly a subset or needs to be a subset of sociology. I mean, yes. because the tradition, now I'm going to the very first statement that we started off with, if the economist, the only currency that the economist understands is that of the billionaire as measured by money in the bank and consumption spending and market cap, right? The economist does not use the currency of what is the experience of life that we are generating for the nation. If the economy is only being measured on GDP and on stock market and these metrics, then all of these bright minds are trying to optimize something which is not necessarily correlated directly to the experience of life. And so if what we are trying to do as a collective is to enhance and elevate the experience of life for a country, for the nation, for humanity, if that's their goal, then to chase GDP growth rates um, you know, and all of these, you know, market cap and these economic index indices uh, is we, we, we're, we're playing the wrong game. We're putting some of the best minds to play uh, a game that, I mean, the goalpost is here, but we're all shooting slightly right of the goalpost, you know? Um, yeah. And it was just fascinating. I just, uh, I, I, I can recommend this uh, book to you uh, as well as perhaps your next interview if you're interested. Um, it's um, by this feminist uh, who has written this book called uh, Desperately Seeking Shahrukh Khan. Uh, do you know Shahrukh Khan? No. Uh, he is by, by Time Magazine, uh, you know, cover article. He is the biggest the movie star of the world with 1.8 billion or more, 2.1 billion followers, 2.1 billion followers, yeah. Uh, followed no, by- I do, No, I do know, I do know him. It, I just wasn't, I never heard it said. I've seen it written, I've just never heard it said. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> by Brad Pitt, uh, who's just half a billion less uh, than, uh, than Shah Rukh Khan. And so uh, this is written by a World Bank economist. Uh, who's also a feminist. Um, well, the economist, sociologist, she's kind of a mix of words. And she talks about uh, how 
she went on the field to do research and she found that the women, because she was trying to understand women's economy at the grassroots. And she says that, you know, I found them completely bored and disinterested in my questions and all of that. So then we started chatting. And of course, what did we chat about Bollywood? And of course, who? Shahrukh Khan. Okay, of course. And their eyes lit up. And she said, that's when I figured out, actually, let me just investigate this phenomenon. And she's written this entire book, which investigates the economy from a feminine perspective, which investigates uh, incomes, livelihoods, um, economic growth, aspirations, uh, consumption, uh, all of this from the woman's perspective, where having a higher income that results in a more alcoholic husband is not exactly growth. Growth is when there is higher income, but it's actually um, pivoted to more affordable and better education and health outcomes for the family. Right? So it's, it's fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating challenge to how do we think about economics and the goals that economists ought to have itself. If you, if you can make that introduction, we'll definitely read the book and interview her. That sounds fantastic. Um, I, what do you think, Terry? I think that's, I mean, we're, we've taken 15 minutes yeah. more of your time than we, we asked for. I, I appreciate your being on. This is a great conversation. Yeah. And I really want to say thank you for, it just felt very uplifting, you know, and I feel like we, we've had a couple of economists on the show and, you know, they, they point to these big structural problems and then you kind of get off the call and you're like, oh. I, you know, yes, there's a lot of problems, but like, we don't, we don't know what to do about it. And we don't see a way forward out of it. And so I, I found this interview to be really, you know, uplifting. So thanks for that. Thank you so much, Terry. And thank you, Jonathan. I mean, uh, clearly, there's a lot of your own um, being that you brought, which was that of open space and listening. Uh, I must just be very truthful and say, not every conversation and not every uh, person that I meet ends up feeling uplifted. Uh, so, so it has something to do with you as well. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.